Welcome to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierma. The Detroit Tigers played at the corner of Michigan and Trumbull for more than a century. They first played at Bennett Park in 1896 as a member of the Western League. In 1912, owner Frank Navin built Navin Field on the same site. It was later expanded and renamed Briggs Stadium and eventually Tiger Stadium. In that historic century, the Tigers played over 6,000 games at Michigan and Trumbull, and names like Ty Cobb, Hank Greenberg, Al Kaline, Mark Fidrich, and Kurt Gibson became legends. The sheer number of games and great players there poses a challenge to anyone who tries to list the greatest ever, but Scott Furkovich took on the task for the recent book Tigers by the Tail, Great Games at Michigan and Trumbull. It features 50 memorable games from opening day in 1896 to the final game in 1999. Furkovich is a member of the Society for American Baseball Research, which published the book. He is also author of Motor City Champs, Mickey Cochran and the 1934-1935 Detroit Tigers, which is due out later this year. I asked him about some of the great games he included in his collection and what made Michigan and Trumbull such a historic address. Scott Furkovich, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. The book is about great games at Michigan and Trumbull, and one of the reasons that intersection is given is because there were two different stadiums at that site, beginning with Bennett Park back in 1896, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, by the time Tiger Stadium closed in 1999, there had been baseball, pro baseball, continuously played there for over a century, and I think Fenway Park and Wrigley Field just matched that record recently. Is this site really underrated uh, historically as a site with such deep roots in baseball? It, it definitely is, and, and, and you're right. Uh, Tigers, well, the location, when, when Frank Naven built Naven Field at Michigan and Trumbull in 1912, it was the same year that um, Fenway Park opened, and I, also, I think I, I believe it was also the year that Crosley Field opened in Cincinnati. And, yeah, when you think about famous addresses in sports and in baseball that's right at the top you know chicago has 35th and shields for comiskey park and clark and addison for wrigley and we've got our michigan and trumbull and in fact nathan when when we were trying to think of a title for the book see it's published by saber the society for american baseball research and they were they wanted to put tiger stadium in the title just to make it more marketable which is logical but i told them well you know you can't really because you can't have Tiger Stadium in the title because it was Briggs Stadium before that, and then it was Naven Field before that, and it was Bennett Park before that originally, and we've got games from all of those parks. So to save ourselves a ton of grief later on from readers who would say, well, you know, you got Tiger Stadium in the title, but it was really you're talking about a game from Briggs Stadium or what, what have you. So we... After much thought, we came up with what we thought was a pretty apropos title, Tigers by the Tail, Great Games at Michigan and Trumbull, because it has that historic uh, corner in it. So Tiger Stadium, or the stadium that was eventually known as Tiger Stadium, Detroit fans have such warm memories of, and it's kind of a paradox, because as you write, the, the stadium itself didn't really have anything to distinguish it. It had the famous flagpole, it had the famous overhang. Uh, but let me read this great line from your introduction that talks about well, you write that, unlike Ebbets Field, Fenway Park, or Wrigley Field, there was never anything romantic about Tiger Stadium. It wasn't charming or quaint. It was utilitarian. It was a little bit industrial, a little bit pastoral. Uh, and so it didn't have the ivy of Wrigley, the rotunda of Ebbets Field, the green monster of Fenway, and yet still Detroit fans came to have these really sentimental, really warm feelings about it. Right. You know, 
it's I think if you think for people who've been there, what's the most um, charming or the most distinctive or the most memorable architectural feature about the place? And you know, there's really not one thing that you can point point to and say, yeah, it's like in Fenway they've got the wall. Wrigley has the ivy, and in the old Yankee Stadium, you had the monuments in center field. But what did Tiger Stadium really have? I mean, in my eyes, you're right. You mentioned the flagpole and the, the short right field porch. And by the way, I, I, I think that short right field porch in the upper deck was kind of uh, blown out of proportion. I've been to a lot of games there. You know, home runs are hit in that deck, but I don't think it really gave away a lot of home runs for lack of a better way of putting it. So even that, you know, it, it had it had a certain quality to it, a certain sound, which when you were watching it on TV, this is the cool thing about Tiger Stadium. When you were watching a game on TV and you heard the crack of the bat, it had a certain sound, which it didn't have anywhere else. It had something to do with the way, with the, way the microphone was placed or, or I, I, I don't know, but it was just, that was a distinctive thing for me watching it on TV. Um, and I, my first game was in 1977. This was uh, kind of near the tail end of the original color scheme, which was that kind of industrial green, um, because I think that was the time where they first started to tear out those seats, those green wooden seats, which were original to the expansion in the 40s. And they repainted it blue and orange. And... You know, as a kid, that was the first thing that really struck me about Tiger Stadium was just this this wonderful green. It was it, you never saw it anywhere else. No other other ballparks had green. It was kind of a an old fashioned color for ballparks, but there was something about that particular shade of green. It was just unusual. Unusual, but yeah. Getting back to your point, there wasn't really anything um, idyllic or romantic about it. It was just an industrial-looking complex, very appropriate for the city of Detroit, which which stood us well for generations. And it's almost as though the lack of a defining feature like ivy on the wall or something like that put even more focus on the game. I mean, all there was inside was a baseball game, and you were so close to it, and the sound of it, as you mentioned, the look of it, um, so you didn't go in there and say, look at the Ivy. It's just, let's go in there and watch this game. Right. Ab- absolutely. And in fact, the sound system was so awful. You know, there really wasn't any, uh, there was no way that they could put in any fancy stuff, any fancy sounds like they do today. Um, yeah, the game was the thing, right? The seats were uncomfortable. Half the time you were behind a post. Well, more than half the time, actually. Um, you know, cause it, there were actually very few seats that were not obstructed. So you made do. There were no frills. There was nothing nothing about the place to hold your attention other than the game on the field. Did that make it harder when the Tigers were having some lean years? You, you caught uh, those first few years that you started attending games. Uh, it was just the early, early years of what would become the dynasty with Trammell and Whitaker and Gibson and Sparky Anderson was it harder as a fan when the game on the field, which is all there was, wasn't as good? It was. You know, in the late 70s, the Tigers' most marketable players were were very few. You know, you, of course, you had 
you had Mark Fidrich, but that was more or less a one-year thing, and they rode that for as long as they could until they finally had to release him. You had, you had, you had the the um, the seeds of what would become the great teams of the '80s, but for a while there in the late '70s, when um, you know my favorite player growing up was Steve Kemp. You had Ron Lafleur, and that was about it. Um, Jason Thompson, uh, not much pitching, but in the early '80s, we uh, we had uh, starting in the late '70s, early '80s. That's when Trammell and Whitaker came on the scene. Morris and Gibson uh, made things a lot easier to go down there and, and watch a game. So let's talk about some of the games in this book. There's games from each decade uh, of the entire history of this site. Uh, back to the Tigers' opening game in the Western League in 1896. Uh, but let's talk about the first game that you wrote and contributed to this volume. In 1935, Game 6 of the World Series, uh, the Tigers had lost the World Series the year before, were still looking for their first championship, and they got it in most dramatic fashion. Uh, tell us about the bottom of the ninth. It was the, it was a tie game, bottom of the ninth, and the batter was Goose Goslin who's a Hall of Fame player. And Goose Goslin was the most appropriate, probably, well, actually the second most appropriate player to collect this base hit, the base hit that um, won the Tigers their first world championship. Because on that particular team, the inspiration, the heart and soul, was Mickey Cochran, who was the player manager and who had come on before the 1934 season. But his first move was to acquire Goose Goslin. Goose Goslin was kind of, um, what type of player was he? He, he? He's probably comparable to like a Bill Buckner type of player. He didn't have big stats, um, wasn't much of a fielder, but he was a consistent 300 hitter for a number of years. And he had a winning Mentality. He'd won a pennant, won a World Series, I believe, with the Washington Senators a number of years before that. So he he came to the to the uh, came at bat and um, delivered the big winning hit, which won it all for the Tigers. The place went crazy. It was the biggest celebration in Detroit since since nobody knew when. And um, the the funny thing about it is, it was almost a home run. I think the the pitch before. He hit. He was a. He hit a long fly ball down the line. It went uh, just foul, but on the very next pitch, he delivered kind of a dinky blue pit just over second base, just over the glove of the second baseman. But it was enough to bring home the run. So the Tigers get their first championship on a walk-off hit. And it would inaugurate the City of Champions era in which the Lions, Red Wings, and Joe Lewis all held championships. It happened in Detroit. There's a case to be made that this is one of, if not the greatest moments in Detroit sports history. Right. There really, there really was no other comparable period to that. And it wasn't just the major sports either. If you read the article in this book, I mean, just like speedboat racing, uh, table tennis, and just some other obscure sports. I mean, Detroit and Michigan um, just had so many champions during that time. And um, it, it, it never happened before, I don't think, in any other American city. It was just it was like lightning in a bottle. 
and you hate to use the words heyday because it was the Depression and because there was, of course, segregation. And as we know from Tom Stanton's book, The Black Legion, so you don't want to romanticize this, but there, this was a unique era nonetheless in Detroit history. It really was. Uh, the, the economy was reeling, and the Motor City, you know, being the Motor City, it was really hit so hard by the Depression with um, auto layoffs, plants closing down. So there was this sense of, of, of despair that uh, winning a World Series can overcome just for a moment and bring a city together. And uh, the fact that it was the first Tigers championship after four trips to the World Series and losing all four of them, and you know, for that one moment, that's why it was such a it, it set off such a huge celebration. Um, much like you know later championships in Detroit would. You know, in four, in nineteen forty, I touch on this I think in the book. In nineteen forty five, we were in despair because World War Two was was wrapping up, and you know that pennant was a feel good thing. And then in nineteen sixty eight, the year after the riots, in nineteen eighty four. When the economy, just like in 1935, the economy in Detroit was really bad, and the auto industry had an uncertain future. So, uh, in 1935, that uh, set a precedent, so to speak. And I was going to ask you about this later because I don't want to switch books. But since we're talking about this era, your next book is on the 34 and 35 Tigers, and uh, you've touched on it. But tell us what drew you to this team, this era. It's it's funny because. When I was uh, just a kid, and um, this was when I was like probably eight or nine years old, and I, for my birthday one year, I got a Macmillan Baseball Encyclopedia, which at the time was the baseball book to have if you wanted to know the lifetime statistics of every player that ever played the game. But it also had the team rosters throughout history. And I would go back and search, flip through the pages, and it came came upon the 1935 Tigers. And they had such great nicknames. And as a kid reading this, and you say, okay, Schoolboy Row. It had such a magical sound to it. You know, I think, who is this Schoolboy Row? And then I'd look at his stats, and oh, okay, he was a 20-game winner. And, you know, Mickey Cochran and, and Goose Goslin and all these great names. And I was just drawn immediately. To, to that team. So in a sense, this book had, for, for me anyway, as, as the author of it, it had its origins back then. And ever since then, I, I thought, how come, how come there's no book about this team, which was so important to the history of, of sports in this city and to baseball? I mean, we hear so much about the 68 Tigers, and that's understandable because it's in, still in our lifetimes or most of our lifetimes we hear less about the 45 team, and I think that's probably because it was kind of an anomaly with uh, the wartime rosters, and we think, well, it wasn't, wasn't really a great team because the, war, the rosters were depleted because of the war. You really have to go back a long way to 1935. It's not in our collective memories as a city or as sports fans. We don't know much about that team, if we know anything at all, for casual baseball fans. So this is really a long, I think it's a long overdue look. 
at what is really a very short window of time in Tiger's history, where for, for two years they really were the most dynamic team in baseball with the most interesting characters. It was a meteoric rise. It didn't last very long because it was a short window of opportunity between some great Yankee teams. But, um, yeah, I just felt like we, we, need to know, we need to remember this team because they were really great. So that Game 6 of the 35 series in the Michigan and Trumbull book, let's jump ahead to 1968, the great 1968 World Series. And the Tigers were in a really bad spot, down 3-1, to one, with the prospect of uh, facing Bob Gibson in an eventual Game 7 if they even made it back that far. In your headline for this chapter, you mentioned Jose Feliciano, who sang a controversial rendition of the National Anthem. Why was this so controversial at the time? <laughs> that seems to be the question in our eyes today. If you go to YouTube and you look at that rendition and you think to yourself, okay, that's a nice little kind of uh, folksy way of playing it. Nothing really out of the ordinary, given the way uh, national anthems are sung and, and played today at sporting events. It seems very tame. But um, 1968, yeah, this was his version was quite a big deal. And I think most of it was because the impression was that it was kind of an anti-war way of playing it. I think it was a political thing. Uh, you have to remember that before Jose Feliciano played it at that game, the national anthem at sporting events had always been kind of a stodgy, traditional rendition, never really deviated from the norm. So for him to sing it the way he did in an acoustic style with this kinds of folksy voice is, is something that had never been heard before. And actually the, the ironic part is he kind of took a long time to sing it. So, which meant that Mickey Lolich, who was warming up down the line in the bullpen, when the anthem started, of course he stopped throwing to take off his cap and, and face the flag, but the rendition went so long that he said his arms started to cool down. And not to make excuses, but he thinks that that kind of factored into why he gave up three runs in the first inning. Yeah, it's really something because we think of Lolich's heroics that series, but yeah, he had that awful opening inning. And had the Tigers not recovered, this uh, already controversial rendition of the anthem may have been even more so if it had been blamed for uh, Lolich's uh, opening inning and his performance that day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, think about it. I mean, it would have been, uh, Tiger fans would have been pointing the finger at him and uh, blaming him, which, of course, would have been not fair because you still have to score four runs. You should be able to score four runs. So, yeah, there, there is that factor. You read about the All-Star Game on July 13, 1971. That game is remembered for one swing of the bat by Reggie Jackson, who launched a moonshot that hit the light tower on the right field roof of Tiger Stadium. Is that home run more or less memorable and mythic because it hit the light tower, uh, or would it have been more so if it had actually left the, the stadium and gone on to Trumbull or beyond? It's probably, gosh, that's a good question. You know, if it had gone over, then um, we would have been able to measure it, maybe, right? I mean, maybe somebody out would have been outside the ballpark and said, oh, yeah, it bound, it, it, it hit this wall or it bounced and hit this part of the sidewalk. And then we could 
you know, get out our tape measures and measure it. But the fact that it hit the light tower, if you watch the video, the camera can't, couldn't even follow it. You, you don't actually, I don't think you actually see the ball hitting the light tower. You only see it falling back to the field. And uh, gosh, who knows where that ball is now, if anybody even knows if they're still in possession of it or if it still actually exists. I think, yeah, I think if we, the fact that it bounced back, it kind of, oh man, why didn't it go out? I think that happened with a lot of home runs at, at Tiger Stadium. Uh, some of them would hit the light tower. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think didn't Cecil Fielder hit one or two that maybe hit the light tower and bounced back or just barely scratched the top of the roof and bounced back? Maybe I'm just imagining things. But, yeah, there's always that, that aspect of hitting those moonshots at Tiger Stadium where it would bounce back. And if it's just a little farther, it would have cleared the roof. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And you write about the national TV debut of Mark Fidrich, June 28, 1976. There are a lot of great games in this book that got national attention, and this is one of them, that Tiger fans had been noticing this rookie pitcher and his quirks, his antics, and also his really good pitching. Uh, But it all seemed to come together on ABC on this Monday night uh, where he pitched a gym, and it was just the introduction of this unique character to the nation. I think that game really show it really tells us a lot about how much our our ways of consuming sports has changed. Yeah. You know, today it, it wouldn't have taken us until June 28th of a season to see a great pitcher, a great young pitcher. You know, we would have been, been able to go to our MLB apps and find it that very night. But but back then people had never seen well, at least nationally, they'd never seen the bird pitch. So this was his big shining moment, and he came through in a way that uh, was just in- incredible to watch. If you've ever watched the the video of that game, what strikes you is just how quickly he worked. Man, he just he got the ball and he threw it, and he and he kept all night long. He was upsetting the Yankees' timing. It's amazing how he would pitch these games. You know, two hours and 20 minutes, two hours and 30 minutes. Gosh, I mean, did this really happen in, well, in my lifetime? I mean, did this really happen 40 years ago? Was it, was it, was the game that different? But that, for him, that was the one big moment on this, in the spotlight, and he really delivered. I think some of the authors in this volume have written about games that they witnessed firsthand. And I noticed that all the ones you wrote up were ones before, as you mentioned, in 1977, you started going to Tiger Stadium. Why was it important to choose some of those games before your time as a fan, at least where you witnessed it firsthand? And and was it harder to kind of recreate the feel of that, given that it was before then? No, it wasn't wasn't for me personally, because much of the games that I saw were not memorable in the sense that I would have wanted to include. I think probably the most... I don't want to say memorable, but the most noteworthy game I attended, I ever attended at Tiger Stadium was the, um, it would have been game three of the 1984 World Series, but I didn't want to include it because it was not, it was not noteworthy at all. In fact, it was a very uh, dull game. At the time, it set a record for most walks in a World Series game. I wanted to write about games that, I don't want to say 
were more on a national level because we didn't always have games that were on a national level, but it, they weren't all. They didn't have to necessarily be Tiger victories either. I wanted to, I wanted to have games that just baseball fans could read about and appreciate. You didn't really have to be a Tiger fan. And the games that I picked, the reason I picked to write <laughs> to write about the games that I did was because I was always fascinated by those particular moments in time. Like I wrote about the Fidrich game, um, the World Series in 35 and in 68. I always drawn, always drawn to those teams and to those particular uh, games. I was going to ask if you could rank your top five games in Tiger Stadium history or Michigan and Trumbull history. And at first I suspected that maybe you did, and maybe you chose the ones that you thought were your top five. The answer you just gave is, is better than that. Is it Would it be possible to pick a top three or top five, or is the history just too long and too deep and too rich for that? Well, I think we'd have to, we'd have to put Gibson's home run in the 84 game probably near the top. Because when you think about it, I'm looking through the table of contents here. And, of course, there are games after that. You know, we've got the Tanana game on the final day of 1987 where we beat the Blue Jays. Um, but that that Gibson home run in, in 1984 was probably the last really great, great moment at the ballpark, right? Because the other games, that, came, that at least that I've included after that, um, they, they're great games, but they don't have one particular shining moment that we play back on YouTube all the time and and we and we can pinpoint and say, okay, well, at this particular moment, I was driving in my car down I-75. So maybe it's, you have to include the 1984 World Series, the Gibson home run game, just for that aspect alone. I think that would be at the top of my list anyway, in my lifetime. Um, you know, the 35 game that we talked about earlier in the 1935 World Series when Goose Goslin made the hit. Um, one game that I think we didn't talk about, which I would include, would be Denny McLean's 30th victory in 1968. Yes. On September 14th. That was a game also that was on national TV. It was on NBC. The Tigers had already wrapped up the, the pennant by that time. There really wasn't any uh, significance to the game other than Denny's 30th victory. There's been so many, so many great games. Um, I think it was hard to choose <laughs> the amount that I did. You know, there's other games that you wanted to include. One thing I mentioned in the book, when when I would when I would tell baseball fans or Tiger fans the, the book that I was working on, sometimes people would look at me and say, "Well, are you including the the Hank Greenberg game, the one where he hit the grand slam in the ninth inning?" In 1945, the last game of the year to win the pennant, and even even when I was compiling the list, it's funny I wanted to com- I wanted to include that game, <laughs> but then when later on when you go back and look at it, it's, oh, it wasn't in Detroit. It, he hit it in St. Louis. So there's kind of this uh, Mandela effect with that. Like we all think it was in Detroit, but it wasn't. But there's just a whole a whole ton of games that are included. I tried to have a fairly representative. Um, cro- across the decade sampling. I didn't want to uh, favor too much in the latter half of the 20th century. I wanted to get a, 
a decent sized sampling from each decade. And I think I did that. Let me ask you about the future of this site, whose rich history you've documented in this book. Now, as we speak, they're constructing a facility for the Detroit Police Athletic League uh, to host youth games and other events there. It will have, the field will have the same dimensions. Home plate will be in the same place. It's a bit controversial because first they're putting in AstroTurf over the site where that lush grass captivated us all for so long. Uh, and also because it's not clear how much this site will be open to the public. There are fans who are going to want to walk the baselines and stand at home plate, and it's not certain how much that will happen. Um, so there was a lot of controversy. Let me ask you, do you think, is this a good outcome, uh, or at least a relatively good outcome, for the future of Michigan and Trumbull? I do think it's a good outcome. I think what they, what they, the plan that they came up with looks like a good thing. And as far as access, uh, like you said, walking the bases and you know, walking in the place where Ty Cobb walked, uh, probably no, we probably won't be able to do that. How much, uh, how much people are going to complain about the AstroTurf is another thing. I don't, I don't take particular issue with that. I understand from an economic standpoint why they want to do it. You know, no, no plan is going to be perfect. And I think this is, this is probably a pretty good future for the site. I mean, it could have been a lot worse. You know, there could have been a, who knows, it could have been a, you could go down there in five years. If it hadn't been for this plan, you could have gone down there five years from now. And who knows, there's a, there's a gas station. So what do you want? I mean, I think it's a good thing. It would be fun, I think, for, for, people to go down and watch the kids play baseball. There's going to be other sports as well. From what I've been told, there's going to be soccer. It's a multi-use site. I think it's a good thing if they can, and maybe they're going to do this already, but if they have a certain wing or a certain hallway in this structure that's devoted to history of the site, I'm all for it. I, I think it's a, I think it's a good thing. It keeps this um, site for baseball, which it's been since 1896 so you get the best of both worlds. Um, I'm excited about it. I've been down to the site probably, I went down there last fall. Gosh, it's been a long time. So I don't know what the progress is. There were just mounds of dirt when I was there. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, it'll be good to have this site live on in some kind of baseball capacity for the city. And all these stories, um, you know, I'm hoping it'll pique fans' interest if they if they never experienced Tiger Stadium or uh, want to brush up their memories, they'll turn to books like this one, uh, Tigers by the Tail. So Scott Furkovich, thanks for this volume and looking forward to the next one uh, on the 1934-1935 Tigers. Once that book is out, we look forward to talking to you again. So do I. Thanks, Nathan. It was a pleasure. Scott Furkovich is editor of Tigers by the Tail, Great Games at Michigan and Trumbull and author of the forthcoming Motor City Champs, Mickey Cochran and the 1934-1935 Detroit Tigers. You've been listening to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Birma. The Tigers History Podcast is not affiliated with the Detroit Tigers or Major League Baseball. The Tigers History Podcast is now on Apple Podcasts. Give us a review and a rating to help us find new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at Tigers History. And join us next time for the Tiger's History Podcast.